Thanks, Andy. Uh, please keep your Bibles open as we're uh, going through this passage. One of the shows that uh, Deb and I like watching together is 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. don't know if you've come across this show. Apart from a little rudeness here and there, it's kind of the perfect show for Deb and I. Deb really loves the, uh, the letters and the number puzzles. And I like the, all the, uh, the funny quips that the comedians throw at each other. And every show starts uh, with the host, Jimmy Carr, coming up with new and colourful insults for the comedians on his panel that night. Now, it's all in good fun. And so I thought I'd begin today's show uh, with a couple of my favourite insults from Jimmy Carr. But just, just so as to not be too mean, I'm going to direct all these insults at myself. Okay, uh, so here's some of the insults he come up with. Uh, he's come up with. So the first is uh, Brendan's shirts are so tight that he looks like a toddler who was granted his wish to be big. Or how about this one? Brendan is a husband, a father, and a minister, but you probably know him best from his work on the popular children's board game. Guess who? You know, is he bald? No. Click. Uh, next, uh, it takes a lot of time to get to know the real Brendan. And a degree in criminal psychology wouldn't go amiss either. Or how about this one? Brennan was born in the Shire, the Sutherland Shire. Uh, that gives him a natural advantage when it comes to maths. More fingers to count on. And then finally, Brennan was also raised in the Shire. Uh, if you want to imagine what that's like, then think of a rubbish bin inside a skip on a landfill. Now, I can say that about the Shire because I was born there, right? Uh, now, here's the thing. As a parent... You hear a lot of insults fly back and forth uh, among your kids. And so as a parent, you need to pick your battles as to which ones you sort of pull, up, pull them up on and which ones you let go through to the keeper. And there's one thing that I just won't allow in our household, and that is one of our kids calling another stupid. Now, it's not the worst insult out there. But being called stupid basically insinuates that you lack what it takes to make it in life. The Bible uses the word stupid four times. And one of those times uh, is in the passage that was just read for us. If you see uh, Ecclesiastes 10 verse, uh, verse 3, Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and they show everyone how stupid they are. Now, the fool, according to the Bible, is the person who continues to sin in a particular way, even though they know that sin is causing them serious damage, whether it be physical, emotional or spiritual. Right? Fools know what they're doing is damaging, but they cannot help themselves. They just keep doing it over and over. And this is what Kawalit is talking about in our passage today. You see, his message is... Those who fail to use their God-given wisdom in life are stupid. Those who fail to use their God-given wisdom in life are stupid. And so the big question this passage asks is, well, what is this God-given wisdom and where do we find it? We don't want to be stupid. Uh, show us where this God-given wisdom is. And I've got three points uh, to help us avoid being stupid today. You can see that on the inside of your news sheet. So Coelette begins uh, with a story of immense wisdom, but that leads to immense stupidity. And so I've titled our first point, Folly Defined. We're looking at the definition of folly. 
Our second point, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time today, our second point is a bit longer. Uh, Colette, gives us, Colette gives us example after example of stupid behaviour. And so our second point is titled Folly Practiced, and there's a whole bunch of sub-points there. We're then going to conclude by circling back to this opening story and see how you and I can avoid being stupid in life. And so I've titled the third point, Folly Resisted. But our goal for today is to find out how to not be stupid. Okay? But here's the thing. Even though we all sin, there is a point at which the Bible says you cross over from simply sinning to being a full-blown fool. And if that's something that we would like to avoid, being stupid in life, then please stay with me as we look at folly defined, folly practiced, and folly resisted. And we, uh, we kick off in chapter 9. So ever since uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, Coelet has been outlining his wisdom for life. And so you remember in, uh, in chapter 7 he said, Be prepared for life's certainties. Those certainties are death and adversity and uh, blessing. Then in chapter 8 he says, Look, wisdom cannot fix everything, so please don't expect it to. And then the first half of chapter 9 he said, Although life is bitterly unfair... Enjoy God's blessings. That's what we looked at last week. Well, he continues his wisdom in chapter 9, verse 13. Have a read with me. Uh, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. So he's still researching life under the sun, okay, life with no God, and he sees an impressive, impressive example of wisdom. So he, he, it begins with a very small city, almost a, a town or a village, if you will, uh, but it's being attacked by a very large army. And the reader is, <clears throat> is supposed to presume that this very small city is done for. Yet in this city lives a poor man who shows the townsfolk how to repel this enormous army. Uh, we're not told exactly how he did it. We're just told that it was incredibly impressive what he came up with. But sadly... That poor man and his wisdom are forgotten, verse 15. And Kowalet's conclusion is in verse 16. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. And friends, this is the definition of stupidity. The definition of folly. It has been presented with irrefutable wisdom, like how to defeat... 10,000 soldiers with nothing more than a, you know, a pack of matches and, and a Swiss army knife, you know, MacGyver style, uh, but then deciding to forget all about it and ignore that wisdom because the guy who showed you had a cheesy 80s mullet. Right? That's why he's talking about a poor man. Poor people are not respected in society. They're generally looked down upon in society because people think they are too stupid to build any wealth themselves in life. So why would I listen to them? But here's the thing. Who's the real fool in this story? Right? The poor man had wisdom enough to save an entire city from certain destruction. The real fools are those who despised and therefore forgot the poor man's wisdom simply because it came from someone they didn't respect. And that leads to destruction. You see, the next time that city is attacked, it will fall because they despised and therefore forgot that poor man's wisdom. All right, the definition of folly, friends, 
is being presented with irrefutable wisdom and then ignoring that wisdom and forgetting about it because you have found someone else you think can be uh, uh, even wiser for you. So that's, that's uh, folly defined. Ignoring irrefutable wisdom. Kawalat then goes on to put this definition into practice with a whole bunch of examples. Now we don't have time to look at every verse in detail. Uh, every verse is, is rich, let me tell you, uh, but we don't have time to look at them all. Uh, fortunately, what Kawalit has done is he's grouped uh, these, these ideas into little um, sections, little vignettes of folly, if you will. And so we're just going to look at these, brief, uh, these sections briefly. And the first section is how a little folly can do enormous damage. So we see in... Um, Chapter 9, verse 18, <clears throat> wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, conventional wisdom says the bigger army will usually win, right? But Kohlet says not necessarily. I don't know if you remember the movie Braveheart. See, right after Mel Gibson's sort of rousing, they'll never take our freedom speech, the English army sends the cavalry to crush the Scottish army. But what the, the Scots have done was they made these huge um, poles, these huge spikes that basically stopped the horses in their tracks. Right? Their wisdom defeated one of history's greatest weapons of war. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But his main point here <clears throat> is that it takes just one sinner to destroy an entire army. You see, after that first battle in Braveheart, uh, William Wallace and his army then go on to sack the city of York, and then they meet the army, the English army again, at Falkirk. But here's the thing, they've teamed up with the Irish, and on top of that, they have all the momentum, so we expect the Scottish will win this battle as well. But what ends up happening, in the movie anyway, I don't think this is real life, but in the movie... Uh, the Scottish nobleman, Sir Robert the Bruce, and two other nobles betrayed the Scottish army for their own, uh, their own benefit, and the Scottish army lose. See, Cullen's point is this. You can spend your entire life walking in wisdom, but one little stupid act can ruin it all. Right, chapter 10, verse 1, as dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. So a modern equivalent would be one drunk tweet gets you cancelled. And he goes on to give us an example of this uh, in verse 4. So read it with me. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offences to rest. Now what does he mean? Imagine you, you, you've made a mistake at work, but your boss just is so out of line and over the top in yelling and screaming and belittling you in front of everyone that you think to yourself, you know, I'm just going to grab my phone, I'm going to throw it down and say, oh, I quit, and then storm out, because he's out of line. Now, that might make you feel good as you storm out the door, but when you get to the car, you realise, oh, I, I'm, I'm out of a job now. Maybe calmness would have been a better way to handle that situation. See, friends, what he's getting at here is wisdom requires constant vigilance your whole life. Just a little folly can ruin every, any, everything, all right? Dive into one rock pool without checking the depth. 
and you could be paralysed for life. Right? One drunken night while away for work and wake up with the wrong person, your marriage is over. One word said in anger or gossip and a relationship will never be the same. Even a little folly can ruin everything. Right, Colette's next lesson is on leadership, on having the wrong people in leadership. So first, verse 6, <coughs> excuse me. He says, fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy low ones. I've seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. Now, a little cryptic what's going on here. Modern culture has a tendency to look down on the rich or on princes these days. But the question Coalette is asking is, who would you rather run in your country? Right? Do you want someone with zero business experience running your country or someone who has run a successful company in the past? Do you want someone whose last job was emptying the bins in your office or someone who was actually brought up in the palace being taught from birth how to rule? Now he says the same thing down in verse 16. Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. All right? the, the foolish leader cares more about partying than actually leading. The foolish leader uh, makes bad decisions either through drunkenness or just because they have no experience. The foolish leader has a tendency for their poor behaviour to trickle down to the rest of society. Now this is why uh, the Bible says leadership is all about character. In Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul outlines everything you need for a church leader. And there are 20 characteristics. Two are skills. Right? Teaching and management. The rest are all about a person's character. Leadership is all about character. Now here's the thing about living in Australia. We don't have a king or princes. We, have, we live in a democracy. And as a democracy, we get to vote in our leaders. So come the next election, state government or local, do not vote for someone with questionable character. Now yes, you can tell a person's character by their policies. It's very important to look at their policies. But... You can also tell a person's character by their private life. You see, a person with a messed up private life will likely mess the country up as well. All right? Take care who we vote for. Uh, Coalette's next lesson on folly is folly in deeds. Verse 8. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Now again, a little cryptic to modern ears, but these are biblical examples of poetic justice. Okay? So falling into a pit that you dug to trap someone else is poetic justice. Breaking into someone's house and digging through their wall only to get bitten by a snake hiding in the bushes down the bottom is poetic justice. And Kowalik's point is that God has created this world in such a way that evil will often, usually, snap back on the person committing it. Right? There are always consequences for sin. 
and knowingly doing the wrong thing is stupid because it will snap back at you. Be careful with your deeds. Next is folly at work. Verse 10, if the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. So the fool says, oh, I don't care if the axe is sharp or not. Let's just get in there and get into the, on, onto the job. Yet after an hour of blood, sweat and tears, they've barely made a dent. Okay, wisdom says let's get the tools ready before we start. Work smarter, not harder. But wisdom also says work hard. Okay, uh, the, the very next verse of the snake charmer, if the snake charmer is too lazy or too distracted to get on with the show, uh, verse 11, the snake might pop up and bite someone while he's off doing whatever he wants to do. Very hard to ask for a fee after that. Be careful with your work. And then finally, uh, folly in words, verse 12 and 13. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness. Uh, now, we all know this. It doesn't take too long to realise if a person is quick to speak and slow to listen, does it? Now, the reason the person is like this is because they think everyone should know their opinions because, well, they're so smart. But what actually ends up happening is no one wants to listen to a know-it-all, do they? And Coalette likens such fools to a cannibal committing suicide in the only way they know how, by eating themselves. Uh, the real problem, though, is they're not just foolish. They're down, they can become downright dangerous. Right? If people have been never pulled up, their words can become, as he says, wicked madness. So take the most uh, recent US election, for example, when it became apparent that Trump was going to lose, what did he do? He started to cry foul. And because of that, there are now huge numbers of Americans who no longer trust the American electoral system. That is going to haunt America for, for years to come. Be careful with your words. So, that's folly in practice. Now, remember, the fool, according to the Bible, is someone who continues to do such things to their own detriment. And that is not generally Christians. When you see the word fool in the Bible, do not automatically think of Christians. But here's the thing. Christians still do sin, don't we? And what that means is we can sometimes be pulled towards folly. So the final question we need to ask is how can we resist being sucked in towards this kind of folly? And to answer this, we need to circle back uh, to the opening story of that poor man who saved the city. Now, if you recall, uh, folly is defined as being presented with irrefutable wisdom, then ignoring and forgetting it because uh, we find someone else to listen to that we think is wiser. And the fools in that opening story were the ones that ignore the wisdom that saved them because it came from a poor man. But this definition of folly runs much deeper than just this passage, all right? Now, what I mean is this. See, when you hear of a poor man with incredible wisdom who saves his people from certain disaster and yet is despised for it, 
Who do you think of? Jesus, of course. You see, the poor man in Ecclesiastes 9.13-16 is an example. He's a shadow. He is a type of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate poor man. He died with nothing but the clothes on his back. And he saved people, not through strength, not through weapons of war, but through incredible wisdom. Friends, I would have given all the tea in China to see Satan's face that very first Good Friday. Now, Satan thought he'd won. He'd incited the Jewish leadership to oppose Jesus. He'd manipulated Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. He'd stirred up the crowd to turn against Jesus, and he blackmailed Pilate into killing Jesus. Conventional wisdom would say Satan had won. But you see, this is the thing that makes Christ's wisdom stand above all else. Jesus let Satan kill him so that by his very death, Satan would be defeated once for all. Right? No longer can the accuser stand uh, and accuse God of injustice. No longer can, can Satan say, uh, you have to punish Brendan for his sins, God. Jesus' death paid for those sins. Friends, the definition of folly is being presented with this irrefutable wisdom and then ignoring it. Now, some people ignore Christ's wisdom outright. They want to have nothing to do with Jesus. And the reason is very simple. Okay? <clears throat> they know that if there really is a God who created me and loves me and sent his son to save me, then one day that God will also assess me. And that's frightening to someone who loves their sin. Charles Spurgeon once said, I am persuaded that men think there is no God because they wish there were none. They find it hard to believe in God and to go on in sin, and so they try and get an easy conscience by denying his existence. That's non-Christians, friends. If there's no God, then I don't have to listen to his wisdom. I can just keep doing whatever I want. But what that means is denying four irrefutable facts. All right, fact number one, there really was a person called Jesus who walked the earth some 2,000 years ago. There is no historian alive today who denies that. Fact number two, the people closest to Jesus, the eyewitnesses of his, death and, uh, his life and death, claim that Jesus really came back from the dead. And they all died early deaths, broadcasting it to the world. Fact number three, if Jesus really did come back from the dead, then everything he said about his death, paying for our sins, is true. And fact number four, Jesus also said that you and I have to stand before him one day. And if we haven't chosen in this life to stand before him as our saviour, then we will stand before him as our judge. The definition of stupidity is knowing we are all going to die one day and failing to prepare for that. Now, as Christians, we have prepared. We've made the decision. We have nothing to worry about come judgment day. Praise the Lord. Jesus is our advocate, not our judge. But we still sin while we're in this life. 
Now, the difference between a Christian sinning and a non-Christian sinning is the Christian doesn't ignore God's wisdom outright. But we are questioning it. That's what sin is. right? Go all the way back to Adam and Eve. What were Adam and Eve doing? They were questioning God's uh, wisdom. They listened to Satan. Satan said, you'll not die. And so they listened to his wisdom and ignored God's wisdom. And brothers and sisters, you and I do the exact same thing when we sin. We're listening to the world, the flesh and the devil rather than God's wisdom. So how do we resist this? How do we resist the folly of sin? It is one way and one way only. We keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. When we keep preaching the gospel to ourselves, two things happen. Okay? Firstly, we're reminded that the gospel is true wisdom. Only the most brilliant mind in existence can allow a pure evil to carry out its plan, but then use that plan to destroy pure evil. It is unbelievable, undeniable wisdom. But secondly, we're reminded that the gospel is the opposite of conventional wisdom. See, what the Bible says is the opposite of sin. That's our conventional wisdom. It is affected by sin. Now, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. Let me read it out to you. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, look, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, uh, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, the, the world, the flesh and the devil says things to us like, oh, just do it. Everyone else is doing it. You'll totally get away with it if you do it. And not only will you enjoy it, it'll be of enormous benefit to you in the long run if you do it. But if it's the opposite of God's world, word, then it is utter stupidity. And it will snap back on you harder than a misfired catapult. Friends, we have in this wonderful book the words of eternal life. Words that make us wiser than our enemies. Words that are sweeter than honey and more precious than pure gold. And those who fail to use the God-given wisdom found in this book are stupid. In the end, it doesn't matter how tight your shirts are. It doesn't matter if you look like a character from Guess Who. If you grew up in the six-fingered rubbish dump called the Shire. I don't really believe that. Uh, but friends... Just don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. For Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God.